It's beginning to look a lot like that holiday season, which means it's that time of the year where you start making a list and checking it twice and realise that you, your friends and family have got way too much crap in your lives. So this festive season, gift yourself or someone you love a monthly or annual subscription to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. Receive new episodes of the show every week and your own premium feed with extended full-length episodes only for paid subscribers. To set up your subscription, just visit thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com forward slash subscribe. Happy holidays. Hi there and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. And this week, say hello to five-time ARIA, Australian Women in Music award-winning air and APRA award-winning Australian musician, Katie Noonan. Her latest album, A Small Shy Truth with Elixir, draws inspiration from the works of Michael Lunig, a Melbourne-based cartoonist, writer, painter, philosopher and poet. Michael's commentary on political, cultural and environmental life spans more than 50 years, often exploring, quote, an innocent and sacred personal world. And while some describe Michael Lunig as a national living treasure, others have campaigned for his cancellation. And in this episode of the Storymakers Institute, I sit down with Katie Noonan to talk about the new album and find out why she's not shying away from her creative instincts. Basically, 2020 was meant to be the year that I went back to being a full-time artist. Yes. After, yes, after five years of very intense administrative roles, running a massive statewide festival and then also working for the Com Games, opening mm. and closing ceremonies and blah, blah, blah. So 2020 was like, all right, that's been an amazing experience, but I'm going to let that go for now and focus more on being an artist again and creating new works. So I actually very luckily got a Australia Council grant to put together this album, A Small Shy Truth, with Ben Houtman, Zach Huron. We employed a bunch of composers to set string arrangements and choir arrangements and whatnot. We were meant to be artists in residence at Bundanon in January 2021, but obviously COVID had other ideas because uh, Benny is based on the Central Coast and we're up here on Gubby Gubby Country on the Sunshine Coast, so yeah, us being in the same place was not possible really until this year. Um, even last year it was still touch and go, but also we were catching up on other gigs that we'd rescheduled and all that stuff. So this album was meant to be done in 2021, so here it is two years later. Um, but it's I'm really proud of it. It's a really special little body of work, a gentle offering and I think after the couple of years we've had, and even particularly the last few weeks we've had, which have been harrowing on various levels, obviously domestically with the referendum and then internationally with, you know, the disastrous happenings in the Middle East, mm. um, you know, it all, you, all I can do as an artist is offer, <clears throat> you know, moments of peace and, and hope, I guess. And I think this album does sort of, uh, hopefully does do that so yeah it feels like it's all you know the timing um, as you know it's meant to be so we're yeah we're really proud of it. So it's had a slightly longer gestation period which actually sometimes yes. kind of helps too. Yeah and and as I say I think the day when it, ca- it came out on Friday and that was just you know just after what the last few weeks which have been tricky and it did feel like oh well 
not that we could have ever imagined that was going to happen, you know, but it, it did feel like a gentle, peaceful, um, contemplative offering into the world and um, it felt like perhaps, you know, it was meant to come out that at that time and we're about to, um, we played at the Melbourne International Jazz Festival on the weekend and then we get around the rest of the country up until sort of mid-December. So mm-hmm. um, it's special to make music with, well, my husband of t- my partner of 24 years. Um, this is this is my longest running project, Elixir. We've been going since 1997 So, um, and with Zach since 99. So we have a special place that we go to in this band that's very integral to our relationship too, as well. So that's really nice. Yeah. What does that dynamic look like for, for you as practitioners working together is there a shared language a shared space that you go to when you're creating this this work yeah well thankfully another covid this wasn't a casualty this was a covid blessing um my husband totally reskilled because you know he couldn't he lost his job teaching at the queensland conservatory of music all all casual staff were let go um and i suddenly couldn't tour and i mean i had to do five 14-day quarantines through the COVID patch, which was pretty intense, Um, you know, but I'm also like harden up. It was two weeks. You've got a roof over your head and you're getting fed. service, hopefully. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's really, you know, harden up. It's really not that hard. But it was quite strange. Remember the first time I came out, I got in the car with my brother and I felt like all the cars were going to crash into me because I hadn't left a room for two weeks and I couldn't even open the window so even the air and the noise was just like so overwhelming I imagine it would be a I don't know but a little bit like perhaps being on the spectrum where there's just too much stimulus and you can't quite and it took me a few hours to I thought we were going to die in the car (laughs) because it was I felt like I was in a computer game and all these cars were it was very strange um it's amazing how the brain you know adapts to Mm. things um but yeah, so I it was yeah strange time. But my husband totally reskilled, and with his beautiful late dad, they he built and designed our studio, the Rainbow Room Studio, and it's an incredible space that Zach built according to the Golden Ratio, which you know for acoustic sound technicians they'll know what that means. Um, but it's a beautiful space. So that was our writing space and recording space and it's the first time I've made a record that way you know and we'll record and Ben came up he stayed at a little place around the corner and then I could just go and cook dinner for the kids and do homework and do normal parenting stuff so it was actually Mm. amazing because normally when I record I sort of have to go somewhere else and I'm often away from my family, but with Zach and I together, we obviously need to be home for our beautiful boys as well. So, yeah, it's a beautiful space. It's had a lot of beautiful sounds made in there. So, yeah. There's so many stories of, of creatives, musicians in particular, who um, who have reskilled during this period of time. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it's almost a pandemic in itself of the number of exits that um that have left the industry or at least temporarily um or or seriously question it at this moment in history we all did and to be honest I was so worried about the mental health ramifications when it started I thought oh gee you know 
mental health is not great generally in the arts sector um, and particularly amongst our crew and but I mean artists we get to have the moments on stage and that what that's what keeps us sort of sane but to not have those moments and for that all to be you know taken away from you and to feel so um, unnecessary you know un uh, essential um, because Unloved. you know in it yeah but in the big scheme of things obviously a nurse or a uh, you know, a, a disease specialist is going to be the most, ascent, you know, in these times of crisis, healthcare workers are the essential legends that, you know, um, literally save our lives. But then, you know, they need music and they need the arts and they need books and they need, you know, all that stuff that we try to make to make life a bit better. Um, but it was a tricky time because, you know, yeah, we, you just felt very unessential and sort of um, not really sort of respected, I guess, and um, particularly for the indie sector where, you know, like if you're in an orchestra or an opera company or any of those beautiful constructs that are supported very, very heavily by government investment, um, you went straight on JobKeeper and, you know, it... it it was, of course, difficult, but there was a financial security that you had, whereas it took quite a bit longer for us indie peeps to have that same support. Um, but we got there in the end. I mean, every you can say so much in hindsight, can't you? Do you feel like you've come to peace with the last couple of couple of years in terms of that feeling of not being as valued as perhaps you thought you you were? Oh, yeah, and, but I, it wasn't so much for myself. I was just worried for my sector, like my colleagues, and I really was expecting to see, to be quite honest, um, you know, loss of life uh, from the ramifications of that. Um, and particularly my mates in Melbourne, it was so hard in Melbourne. Like that was dystopian. I actually ended up going to Melbourne a bit there and, you know, the streets were just army and federal police and the homeless that was it that was all you saw on the street it was really scary stuff um i had a national tour that opened yeah. at the height of omicron which oh. a theater show which we then toured all over the country in 22 but it was it was one of those moments where, where you sort of stack the whole house on a creative project and look quite literally often as as a creative and the amount of um ongoing risk oh is, unbelievable is still and, to this day extraordinary. yes and we're still it's going to take years like so obviously thankfully we've moved into a labor government with an arts minister that does have an open ear to these concerns about insurance and all that sort of stuff and also he loves contemporary music which is great because that has largely been underfunded when compared to the more traditional Judeo-Christian constructs that we define our sense of culture by, which is, you know, an existence Football. of a theatre. Well, yes, of course. Hey, listen, I love sport. I love all culture. And I think the culture of sport is equally important to the culture of the arts. So, um, And the big difference is gambling. That's the elephant in the room. If we could somehow work out a way to make it, you know, 
MSO versus SSO, who will take it out for orchestra of the month? Or it's funny there you was say some that. way you could gamble on it. We'd we'd all be making. <laughs> I mean, I hate gambling, so of course not. But we need them to fund fund a little bit more cash over our way. It was working on com games. That was very much a difficult, arduous mixture of art and sport and TV and all sorts of other elements that you can't control. Um, but yeah, I I don't I, so I think it's I think it's getting better. I mean, I really do feel sorry for theatre makers um, because the level of cost, like for a musician, we've got it relatively easy. We just need a PA and we've got our instruments and a you know we don't need sets, we don't need intricate lighting designers, we don't need trusts and you know props and costumes and you know we can strip it back to a very simple and powerful thing. Whereas my mates who are actors and directors and dramaturgs and, you know, that life is so much harder because it's very difficult to self-produce, incredibly difficult. Um, and, yeah, so I was I was just worried about the sector and we've lost people that will never come back. Like one of my my, my two IC producer on Com Games is now a midwife because she was just like, I can't take this insecurity anymore. Um, and, you know, the arts is... It's the best job in the world, but it's the hardest job in the world and um, it's not easy to have a family and, you know, you've got to have a partner that understands this madness that you're obsessed with and that you will remortgage your house for and, you know, all that risk. Um, the hard thing about COVID was constantly the goalposts kept on moving so you'd, you'd reschedule and then it would be like, oh, no, Vict- Victoria's shut again so oh, we can't do that and as you would have known with your production the amount of admin you had to do on setting out the various options um and then like I went to the Adelaide Cabaret Festival and then Emma Donovan couldn't come because she was in the Melbourne lockdown in a bad area and then oh it was just you basically one long horrible improvisation solo (laughs) that just went for like two years oh for me it's that it's that kind of endless screechy jazz that comes on the radio later at night which I just I I get to a point where like everything is fine and then and then about 10 minutes into listening to screechy jazz I just suddenly go stop (laughs) I know I said it was like a really long terrible sopranino avant-garde sort of horrible sax solo that just wouldn't stop. Wouldn't stop. Wouldn't stop. <laughs> but anyway, and I love the saxophone, so yeah. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful instrument and yet when it becomes screechy, I'm out, I'm out, Oh, I'm out. no. <laughs> well, that's why playing with my husband on this record, he's a rare saxophonist because, you know, often well, jazz is a beautiful form but when you start, you build up your vernacular to be able to play sort of anything that comes into your brain. But then you have to learn to switch that off and leave the toolkit and just pick certain tools and leave space and allow, serve the music, serve the song, serve the story rather than serving your ego. And that takes quite a while to figure that out. Um, but Zach is very much that person where every note he plays is deeply considered and he leaves a huge amount of space, which is very rare. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That that mental image was so strong to me. That idea of sort of opening up the toolbox and then being able mm. to have a, have a little bit of this, and I'll take a little yeah. bit of that, but I don't need that. But not all the tools at once, and they all don't have to be. Yeah, it's you get this toolkit, and then you build the toolkit up, and you learn how to use whatever it is, you know, and then you have to let them go and just um, 
and also sort of forget about them too. Don't mm. actually think about what you're doing when you're really in the moment of creating. Mm. You're not going, oh, am I playing Lydian augmented on this chord or whatever? Or you know, you're just trying to just honor the song and mm. the story. Mm. Yeah. Mm. For those joining us uh, across the globe, who is Michael Lunig? Oh, Michael Lunig. Well, he's been declared uh, an official national living treasure. Um, he is a beautiful poet. I consider him a philosopher and a very sort of spiritual fellow who has this capacity to speak to who we are and speak to the human condition in a very succinct way um, that is equally wise as well as childlike. He's got this incredible capacity to create characters like Mr Curly that look so simple and unassuming but Mr Curley's thinking about all the big things in the world. He's thinking about mortality. He's thinking about war. He's thinking about, you know, um, enforced vaccinations. And he's thinking about difficult subjects that we do have to grapple with in modern life. And Michael does that in two ways. He does cartooning, which he works for the age and has done for over five decades, which he must be one of the longest running journalists at any paper in the country, I would imagine. Um, and he writes beautiful poems and prayers and books. And I think he has a very special way of looking at the world that's all about the miniature, the minuscule, the little moments of life, which suits Elixir perfectly because that's sort of what we're about as well, the very gentle, reflective ruminations of, of everyday life. Mm. Yeah. And how did the idea come to you or to him so far as coming together yeah well so there are two versions of the album there's one with just the music and then there's one with him speaking the poems as well and I really like hearing that because you know he's a septuagenarian elder he's lived a good 30 plus more years than me and his voice does you know it has worn it has lived a big life and so I love the timbre of his voice it's it's um it's a beautiful voice of an elder. Uh, so Elixir started in 1997 and I was obviously five years old um, and I was at uni and was in my band George, which was more of a sort of rock pop band and I just felt I really wanted to create an acoustic quiet world for music making um, and I was really influenced by people like Nick Drake and Joni Mitchell and that sort of, you know, late 60s, early 70s folk uh, movement and um, then I also wanted to celebrate great Australian writers so we, this is our fourth album the first one was with poet Martin Chalice second one was with poet Thomas Shapcott and then the third one was with Michael which came out in I think it was 2018 or 19 um, gratitude and grief and then this one the follow-up in 2023 um, and initially I was going to make it a bit of a synopsis of all three poets, but it just didn't work. The narrative between them was just too different to make it a cohesive body of work. Um, but as to how I met Richard, I met him about – us, uh, Richard. I met Michael with Richard Tonietti about 15 years ago when I was performing with the ACO at Hamer Hall and um, Michael came and we just went to supper afterwards um, – on the Yarra there and I just was like oh you're just you're you're a kindred spirit you feel like an old friend immediately and then some months later I reached out for a cup of tea and we had a cuppa and I said I'd love to 
just work with you and he was open to it and he was very much involved like um he lets me sort of edit and repeat sections as required and you know is very generous in that way but also some poems are too short so I was like this one's not quite enough for a song could you please write another verse or another chorus and and he does and very graciously um is a part of the creative process so Mm. yeah it's lovely to work with an elder of his um ilk and of his wisdom and his um, generosity yeah how would you describe the effect that his words have on you they bring me a profound sense of peace um like basically any writer that you love you read or write it and go god i wish i'd written that he's just summed up or she's just summed up exactly how i feel and summed up big difficult constructs that i can't quite you know um verbalize clearly and then he does it and in a very succinct way very still and very short like then his works are generally quite short yeah I feel a sense of peace that's really what I feel and um but also he's quite a larrikin it's quite some of them are quite feisty and funny and um like one of them on our last record, I want to go to La La Land and take a holiday. In La La Land, they'll understand the things I have to say. And then later it says, um, everything is joyfully all wrong. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's joyfully all wrong and and happily, like it's just got this, yeah, he's got this way of just describing beautiful glimmers of life in fact we've got a song called the glimmer which is all about when you just see a little moment of life and go wow that's perfect whether it be a baby falling asleep or a bird singing in a tree or a you know a leaf fluttering in the breeze where you go wow that's a moment of beauty on this planet yeah he Mm. manages to capture those moments a lot there's one uh, one of his that I that I called. There was a a friend who turned away from all the babble and display, and life became a child at play, a heart to hear, a song to pray. And I really mm. um, that's one that has sort of stuck with me, alongside his uh, endless fascination with ducks. Yes, he loves ducks and loves a dog and loves a good cup of tea. And, you know, it's tricky for him because he is a political journalist, so part of his job is keeping up with all the harrowing, horrible, awful news of the world. He doesn't do his political cartoons anymore, which I think is a grave disservice to freedom of speech and journalism, to be honest, because he was, um, I believe, quite unceremoniously, uh, you know, cut from that regular weekly political cartoon in the age in the height of the sort of really dark days of COVID where he was questioning things and, you know, he's got, he that's his job and that's the role of a political cartoonist. It's not their opinion. They're just reflecting what's happening in the world and people don't seem to understand that. And in the age of social media, there's just really no chance for nuanced discussion anymore it's just the time of complete outrage and you know a lot of hateful speech really um against all sorts of people and he definitely got cancelled you know in that environment which i think is a grave disservice to freedom of speech yeah 
Was that a concern for you when you were embarking on this project or bringing it into fruition uh, after a gestation period? Was that was that something that was concerning you that your audience would not go with you? Sure, yes. and that is- Well, that's it for this free edition of the Storymakers Institute. If you'd like to hear the full extended episode, all you need to do is head to our website to become a paid subscriber, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com.